Hey, podcast listeners. We want to know who you are. We meet many of you at conferences and hear from some of you through email, but we want to know the collective you, and more importantly, what you collectively want to hear. We've got a very short 13-question survey up online, and we'd be thrilled if you could fill it out for us. It's just some basic information on listening habits, your affiliation with the industry, and topics you're interested in. You can access the survey through the link in our show notes, either on your mobile device or on our website. Thanks so much for taking the time to fill it out. And now a quick word about our sponsor, SMA. SMA is a provider of the world's leading inverter technology and backed by the world's leading service team. With more than 850 service experts, 90 service hubs, 30-plus gigawatts installed globally, and thousands of commercial and utility projects, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. For more, go to sma-america.com. For the week of October 1st, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to our show. I am Stephen Lacey here with you, a senior editor at Green Tech Media. Today, are we reaching the limits of America's fracking boom? We will attempt to bring context to the most pessimistic and optimistic scenarios for fracking. We will also talk about a very important solar consideration at the IRS and look at whether last week's UN Climate Summit and Big Climate March in New York accomplished anything. Here, as always, with me to dissect these topics are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine is our DC policy guru and a partner with the public policy firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, I understand you just got off a plane, you sat down at your desk, and you're about to rush off after this podcast to go to the White House. So thanks for taking the time. How are things? Just great. I'm I'm much happier about the fact that I was able to go to the Nats game on a lark. I took my three kids. My husband was out of town. I was like, hmm, what am I going to do today? So I went and watched Jordan Zimmerman pitch a no-hitter, absolutely spanked the other team, pitched the entire nine innings, and got two hits off their pitching staff. It was amazing. And uh, they put all these young guys out there to play. Uh, and this this new superstar, uh, Steve Souza Jr., made this miraculous catch. Anyway, it was a great way to spend a Sunday, and we're looking forward to the playoffs. Yeah, it was an awesome game. I was getting some excited texts from you during the game. <laughs> and I understand you don't have playoff tickets, so if anyone out there has some free playoff tickets for Catherine. Just let her know. Drop her, <laughs> drop her an email. I will be your friend. <laughs> yeah, they have to be free, and they have to come with Ben's Chili Bowl coupons. <laughs> for the vegetarian type of chili, right? Yes, that's right. Catherine's a vegetarian, <laughs> but I'll take the Ben's Chili Bowl meat I love their if... vegetarian chili. I used to live right good. next to their place at U Street. And you just heard from Jigger Shaw, who is in New York City. He is a partner with Clean Feet Investors, the founder of Sun Edison. Jigger, I saw that you were at a big dinner in New York this week for the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, he's sort of taken over the rock star status that President Obama had before, and he filled up Madison Square Garden with 20,000 people. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, he's got quite the fan base. He recently made some comments on climate change that made it sound like he was kind of skeptical about human causes. What did you make of that? Well, I didn't hear those comments, but generally speaking, the, the, the line um, from the Indian government is, you guys created this mess through the Industrial Revolution in the last 150 years, so don't expect us to have to like abide by your emission reduction rules. Um, and that was the sort of comments they made like five or six days ago. Yep. 
But um, but separately, they decided to change the rules to get to 10,000 megawatts of wind per year next starting next year, and they want to get to 10,000 megawatts of solar next year deployed starting in 2017. And so, I mean, they're doing all the right things on the climate change side, I think, in terms of going away from coal towards clean energy sources. I just think they don't want to be bound by a treaty. Yep, I think that's a fair point, and we'll talk about that during our segment on the UN Climate Summit, the difference between some sort of international binding treaty and the ground-up efforts that individual countries are doing. So big difference between what you can accomplish. Let's go on to our first topic. In mid-September, the U.S. government revised its estimates for U.S. oil production upward once again. Boosted by increases in tight oil production from shale formations in North Dakota and Texas, America could soon surpass its previous domestic oil peak hit in 1970. At the same time, U.S. natural gas production, also driven by fracking, hit an all-time high this summer. The U.S. is now one of the world's top oil and gas superpowers, and we've known that for a while now, but it's really showing no sign of letting up. But don't be fooled, say skeptics. America's fracked oil and gas could soon hit a peak. They point to the massive decline rates for wells. One prominent Canadian geologist and drilling consultant, David Hughes, recently released an analysis of these decline rates for the Post-Carbon Institute, showing an 85% average drop in production at unconventional wells in the first three years. And the oil and gas industry, it should be noted, is not disputing those numbers. Hughes and others say the shale boom is simply a short-term bonanza, and that a steep drop-off in U.S. production is only a couple years away, as drillers struggle to keep pace with declines in production. However, total production is still growing and the EIA suggests that a peak may not come for another couple of decades. So what are we to make of these figures about decline rates? The decline rates are inevitably a challenge for industry in producing production, but they're not news. Michael Levy is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the book Power Shift. He says that decline rates, while certainly important, don't tell us as much as you might think about the sustainability of unconventional oil and gas production. EIA actually takes these decline rates into account when putting forth its projections. It's it's entirely reasonable to question the bullish projections of production out uh, several years, and particularly out 10 or 20. Uh, Oil prices could be different, which could shift incentives. New plays that producers move into could be less productive than they expect, or they could be more productive. Technological progress could be faster or slower than people anticipate, and public acceptance could shift. There's enormous uncertainty out there. The uncertainty around declines in in the first few years is way at the bottom of the list of unknowns. The big unknown, says Levy, is technological progress. If there's one lesson to be learned from the current fracking boom, it's that changes in drilling techniques and technologies are very hard to predict. Very few people expected horizontal drilling to take off like it did in the mid-2000s, and the current range of expectations about future change is vast. When you look at projections for the future, there is a large range of expectations around technological progress. Uh, That often explains the difference between extraordinarily bullish projections and much more muted ones, and it's difficult to anticipate where technological progress goes, in part because as you move on to new plays, some of the technological effort goes into cracking the code of that new play rather than building on previous success. So if technological effort has to be directed toward cracking new plays rather than building on previous advances, you're not going to see the same gains in productivity. We saw enormous gains in technology 
for automobiles over decades. Uh, but rather than being directed into improved fuel economy, they were directed into pretty much everything else, including increased weight in vehicles. So technological progress can happen, but what ultimately matters is the direction that it's applied in. For those who are not experts in oil and gas markets, myself included, we're all left wondering who's right about all this. There are a lot of factors that could constrain fracking operations here in the U.S., but it's really not clear by how much. The, the projections get very murky when we look a couple decades out in the future. So let's chat about this, and let's talk about the short-term implications and well out into the 2020s and 2030s. And Jigger, I'll go to you on this because uh, you've been looking at some of these numbers I think it's a stretch to be calling the end of fracking near, but I'm curious if there are any specific limitations that you're you're paying attention to right now that you think might have an impact. Well, I, look, I think the end of fracking is not near. I think the economics of fracking, though, are being scrutinized. So you're at a point where you have to invest $30 billion a year just to keep our total oil and gas uh, production flat. Right in the in the back end shale and a few other places, and that's a lot of money. I think right? it's actually and, higher than that. I think Hughes said for both oil and gas, it was like over seventy five billion. Yeah, I think that's right. I think thirty is just for the back end, and so now you're talking about a lot of money. Every year that money has to be re upped, and so people have to look at what's happening to natural gas prices, what's happening to oil prices. How do we actually figure out whether we should or shouldn't invest in? these particular areas. Separately, states like North Dakota are saying, are we charging enough to the oil drillers for the infrastructure damage we're sustaining? So they're getting tons of roads that are getting destroyed, lots of facilities they have to provide for the kids of a lot of the oil workers where they have to provide makeshift schools, etc. So I don't think that the end of fracking is near, but I do think the economics of fracking are changing radically, and it's not as profitable as solar and wind is turning out to be. And there's this issue of community impact, which you alluded to right there and talking about the cost to maintain roads um, and what happens when companies leave. And as these companies have to drill thousands of new wells, um, and mind you, they're not disputing these numbers. Yes, they have to drill lots and lots of new wells to keep production up. But the, so far, they're able to do it. But they're moving into new communities. They're expanding uh, as far as they can go in these shale formations. And now that you're starting to see some public backlash against fracking and more people ask for disclosure of chemicals and um, toxic air emissions, you could run into some serious constraints here. Catherine, you're kind of watching some of these regulatory issues on the fracking level, but it doesn't sound like you think this will slow fracking at all. No, I don't. And, you know, there's a difference between sort of the wet gas where you're getting oil and gas at the same time. And usually when you're doing oil exploration, you can you can kind of stay put for a longer term. But these gas fracking sites, it's like whack-a-mole. They get in and out really quickly, a couple weeks, a month at the most, and they go to the next site and they've left behind all this bad water and chemicals and, you know, so much um, environmental waste behind them um, that the that the the issue on regulatory structures is going to be critical. And that on states, there's states like North Dakota that you mentioned, where it became so egregious that if you look at a map of the United States at night, it looks like North Dakota is celebrating the Fourth of July all the time because of all the flaring. And so they've called for a 95% reduction in flaring, which we've talked about before. Um, Colorado has had a ton of kind of like local pressure 
local political pressure to put methane regs in place. On the federal side, really the only things we've been able to do are BLM regs. The fracking rule has been held up. That's going to um, make developers disclose chemicals for what they're doing with their water, the integrity of their wells and equipment. Um, there's also going to be a methane rule that BLM is putting out, but that's only addressing public lands issues. So it seems like this is not slowing down and, and there's no regulation. That's not saying that they're all going to be bad developers, but if you have regulation, then you might be able to at least curb some of the destruction of some of the ones that aren't, you know, that, that don't care. Well, never fear. Fred Krupp is supposed to save us and create these regulations that make tracking safe for all environmentalists. Hey, I did see something interesting that you passed along, Catherine, and that is since 2011, we've seen roughly a three-quarter decline in methane emissions from natural gas operations, which was just quite remarkable. Yeah, and that has to do with other EPA rules that have been put in place in, yeah. to a large extent as well. I think it's important to note how beneficial reducing methane emissions can be for these companies, though. I mean, if you cap the methane and reuse it, it can be help raise the profitability of a well. Yeah, but I think on the money side, just, you know, sticking to that for a second, I think, you know, I've talked to Indus Capital, for instance, who's who's part of sort of George Soros's group. I mean, and they've done some really interesting work showing that they think resource productivity solutions really will lead to a reduction in oil prices, substantial reduction in oil prices by 2020. And so what ends up happening is, is if if we've got to, you know, do something on the order of 70 plus billion dollars of investment every year to keep the dream alive and oil prices suddenly go down to 70 bucks a barrel, folks are just literally going to abandon this stuff. They're going to keep their 70 billion dollars, put it back in their pocket, and they're going to abandon all the workers, all the sites, all the tax revenue from the local governments. I just think a lot of folks are not thinking through the precarious situation that we're in. Fracking is not a new technology for as many times as people want to repeat it. Fracking is an old technology that is profitable when oil is 100 bucks a barrel. But when oil is at 65 or 70 bucks a barrel, the economics of fracking look quite a bit worse. And you think we can just get there through efficiency and reduced consumption through conservation? No, I think Indus Capital, what they're suggesting is that the high oil prices are leading to a lot of cafe standard increases, leading to a lot of uh, fuel substitution, right? You got Pump the movie that came out this last week, and you know they're talking about ethanol and methanol and ethane and other fuels. You got electric vehicles going strong. And so I think what Indus is saying is that we probably will actually offset two, three, four percent of total oil volume globally by 2020 and will actually hit peak oil uh, demand. Uh, so not peak oil supply, but peak oil demand, and that'll actually drive oil prices lower. That's what people have to keep in mind when they watch this. A lot of people are so focused on decline rates of wells. And Pricing has so much more to do with the profitability of these operations. And these drillers are going to be able to continue to expand with, say, oil prices where they are. It's just – it is going to be economical. And as Michael Levy pointed out, we don't know where oil prices are going to be in by the mid-2020s. And that could completely destroy the economics of a lot of these operations. So 
I agree that this pricing issue is far more important than the decline rates that we're seeing, which only tells a very small part of the story. Yeah. And I would say, especially because so many of our policymakers are really bullish on natural gas and they see natural gas. I mean, even the president says it's a bridge. Uh, but in fact, um, it appears to be a destination and um, and it's going to slow. You know, if we switch over to natural gas, it's going to slow the process of decarbonization and slow down renewables, I think, instead of um, instead of increasing the opportunities. Well, there were a lot of um, articles that came out about that recently. There was the most recent one was the federal um, data that just came out showing that if we export natural gas to Asia, that that's actually worse for the planet than for them to just burn their own coal um, because of all of the emissions in you know getting the gas and then also transporting it. So, look, I, I think that I think in general. There's a couple things in terms of the macro that we have to keep in mind. The solar industry has been unaffected completely by the natural gas boom, and we have experienced our own boom that, that has not been restricted in any way by the natural gas boom. That natural gas at 425 a million BTU, which is where it's sort of settled in right now, is actually more more costly than the most efficient coal plants. So the reason emissions went up last year. Um, or sorry, in the last 12 months in the U.S. is because we've shifted back to coal away from gas on the electricity sector. So I just think this whole theory around natural gas being a bridge and it's actually hurting renewable energy, et cetera, is complete poppycock. And people who say it are literally making it up on purpose to confuse people. Wait, we, we, you don't think we can say that if natural gas prices were, say, between six and eight bucks, uh, a million BTU that solar wouldn't have expanded far faster than it even has today in the last no. three or four years. Natural gas really? has had absolutely zero impact on um, the the advent of solar. Zero impact. If you think about what utilities are buying, the reason utilities are buying solar is a, precisely as a hedge against natural gas at six and eight. And if natural gas was to be a, a for-profit endeavor, natural gas has to be at $6 a million BTU. And so they're building as much solar as they can because they don't want to lose their jobs when natural gas prices do spike to 6 bucks. But Jigger, I would push back on the whatever I said that you said was poppycock, which was, I, um, you know, I met with PJM on Monday and they're looking at – um, you know, having to operate 12 states in the mid-Atlantic and, you know, what do they do when all the coal plants shut down? And they're looking at, you know, natural gas plants being built out. Now, if those plants are built out, that that is that doesn't leave a lot of room for renewables if it's going to take over their load. So I still think there's an issue. If you have natural gas baseload plants being built, then that's going to prevent renewables from really... Right, but that's, but that's not how this works. It's not a zero-sum game. In the PJM, you have nodal pricing at each individual node, right? If that nodal pricing is coming in above the, the general overall price of the PJM, so for instance, Erie, Pennsylvania is a very low-cost place for the PJM. No one's going to build a solar plant there. But Maryland is a very heavily congested place uh, for the PJM. You could build a solar plant there and still make money merchant going forward. If someone builds a natural gas plant, that's because of some sort of 
um, integrated resource plan planning process, but the solar industry is completely um, not in the same queue as the natural gas folks. Those natural gas plants will become stranded assets, and everyone I talk to believes that those natural gas plants will become stranded assets. It's not basically there's this middle region we're in right now for the next 10 years where a lot of people want to build natural gas because they don't believe in intermittent power sources, and the solar guys are making their case node by node. Yeah, well, what it means is that in PJM and other places where there's congestion, what matters is what you have at any given time. And that's what's valued. So, you know, whatever is available, and then if then solar can become really cost effective. So do you think we don't have anything to worry about then with gas? That it I don't won't become think the a- renewable energy industry has anything to worry about for gas. But I think consumers have a lot to worry about with gas because someone is going to pay for all these stranded assets. If we build a bunch of natural gas plants and they rate-base them, and then suddenly all these natural gas plants are only used 20 25% of the time, which is where we're headed by 2020, 2025 – then someone's going to have to pay the capacity payments and all that natural gas, and that's going to be a lot of money that's dumped down the tubes. And that's the context that I think is missing in a lot of the critiques of fracking. So people are so focused on the drilling side. Uh, There are, of course, some issues associated with these depletion rates, but really it doesn't, as far as I can tell, signal a major peak. But when you look at the amount of capacity that's getting built that won't necessarily be economic in the coming years, uh, that's much more. That's a much greater problem than the drilling problems. Let's move on. Uh, and before we get into our second segment, we'll get another word in here about our sponsor, SMA. Did you know that a properly maintained solar plant can increase yield up to thirty percent, maximize production, and accelerate your investment payback with SMA's operations and maintenance service, which includes twenty-four-seven remote monitoring for commercial and utility PV plants. O&M offerings from SMA are scalable to fit your business model and are backed by the industry's number one service team. Uncover the full potential of your PV system with SMA service. Let's talk about taxes now. The Internal Revenue Service is now considering the tax implications of a value of solar tariff compared to net metering. Last week, we found out that the IRS was evaluating whether value of solar tariffs could saddle homeowners with higher income taxes and potentially put the 30% residential tax credit at risk. So here's a little bit of context. Because net metering is a bill crediting system and um, part of one simple transaction with the utility, it's not considered income, so it's not taxed. But last year, a major tax law firm wrote an analysis warning that because value of solar tariffs are, in theory, payments, meaning all electricity is exported onto the grid, and then the utility compensates the homeowner at a set rate, they are subject to income taxes, much like a feed-in tariff would be. They also warned that value of solar tariffs could prevent homeowners from taking advantage of the 30% investment tax credit since a system owner has to consume at least 80% of the electricity generated on site rather than export it all into the grid. The solar industry has been debating this for some time, and now it actually moves into an official capacity, so it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Uh, Catherine, I know you've been talking to the folks at SIA. What are you, what are you hearing from them? 
Yeah, so I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing because there needs to be some clarification. And again, this isn't an investigation that some of these headlines have said this is a battle and it's an investigation. Now, a lot of the companies who are members of TASC have a pretty healthy skepticism about utilities and what the utilities are trying to get. So if a utility, they hate utilities. Li- yeah, so if a utility <laughs> likes something, they immediately worry about it. Um, but what Sia says is, look, there are some things that need to be clarified because this is just a different way of accounting. So they need to... Cl- IRS needs to clarify whether system owners can qualify for the Section 48 investment tax credit, which is the commercial section, if they can't qualify for the residential, which is Section 25D. And if they can qualify for Section 48, can they also qualify for the depreciation benefits that aren't available under 25D? So are they able to actually take depreciation? And then finally, will those payments or the credits from the value of solar tariffs uh, qualify as taxable income, as you mentioned? And if and if that's so, to what extent will they? So they see this much more as a clarification um, by the IRS. The IRS doesn't see this as an investigation into anything nefarious. It's really just about, all right, now given that this is a different accounting system, how can we account for it? There's this potential to get the commercial business tax credit in lieu of the residential tax credit. So perhaps this clarification might change things for homeowners, but it could still be a net positive. Jigger, how do you think it will net out? Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, I think that, I think that let's just say that this is viewed as income. Well, then you go to a lease. That's what the lease is for. I mean, we always on a lease view everything that comes in as income. So it doesn't affect leases. It only affects loans. So it doesn't kill the solar industry. It just changes the way in which we um, process um, the the financing. So I just think this is much ado about nothing. I think the the residential solar installers in general are just feeling very very fearful because there's there's a democratization of finance coming with NRG and others saying everyone whether you're originating two deals a month, five deals a month, or your solar city can now you know sell us your deals. And so it used to be that financing was a barrier to entry, and now it's not going to be one starting next year. And so I think a lot of these guys are just really fearful, and they're saying, why value of solar right now? Why are you introducing value of solar right now? Why can't we just live within the net metering framework that all of our investors actually get? You know, value of solar freaks out our investors. They don't know what's coming, what the risks are, and we're going to have to start the education process all over again. I get why they're saying what what they're saying, and I get why they're so worried about this stuff. But, you know, progress is progress, and the solar industry has had a lot of changes over the last eight years. So, I mean, at some point, they just have to get used to it. And on that point... I get why the utilities are talking about cost-shifting issues as well. They have to protect their investors. We saw a report come out from Lawrence Berkeley Lab that shows solar does indeed deeply affect uh, investor returns. And, uh, you know, the utilities are coming at this from the same position as well. Yeah, except that that study said unequivocally that it doesn't negatively affect the the customers directly it just affects the utilities which is awesome and so now customer advocates are like woohoo we could actually and people like me are are cheering because we're like we could push solar and we can like push for customer choice and we can push for all these things with uh with now someone from the u.s government saying that this is actually you know not going to hurt the rate payer right yeah so they did say that the rate payer payer was barely affected even at very high penetrations of solar pv and uh, there was one option that could protect 
shareholders, and that is the utilities getting into solar themselves. So there's that. We'll put that right on the table. Mm-hmm. Let's go to uh, topic number three, and uh, we'll take a brief stop in New York again, where we were last week, and that was where a major UN climate summit took place. There were some notable developments there. Over 1,000 businesses committed to internal carbon pricing. More rich countries pledged to give money to developing countries for climate mitigation, adaptation, and deforestation prevention. And President Obama announced a range of partnerships on open climate data, methane leakage studies, and the Powering Africa Initiative, among many others. And some of those were new. Some of them were prepackaged. And, uh, of course, there was this record-breaking climate march on the streets of New York you might have heard about. But can we look back and say that these developments were actually game-changers, that they actually meant something in the big picture? Opinions, particularly on the climate march, have varied widely. Um, Jigger, you and I were at the the march. Uh, we were in New York. We saw the energy. Uh, you know, it, it was very clear that there was a great diversity of groups, most of which were on the left, but it felt good to be rallying around something. But, you know, as you come away and you've reflected over the last week, do you feel like anything was accomplished there? I do. I mean, look, I think that the old guard really believes that we're going to be able to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, get a global deal and actually put a price on carbon. I think one of the great narratives that have come out of um, this last week was with Naomi Klein's, uh, Klein's new book, um, was it everything? Everything's cast to change. Um, you know, she's really talking about there's a fundamental conversation here between capitalism and the way capitalism is underpinned um, and climate change. And I think when you looked at that march, 75 percent of the signs that I saw were anti-capitalism and anti-Wall Street. And so I do think that there's a tremendous amount of energy that came out of that. And there's a lot of new thinking that I think is starting to emerge around how but, we really gain leverage. But you're like, you're a capitalist yourself. So why do you think that that's necessarily positive? I mean, you talk about how free markets uh, with some structure and capitalism can help create the greatest wealth opportunity of our generation. I don't see how that squares with the vast majority of people there who are talking about bringing down big banks and are talking about flooding Wall Street, which actually kind of turns me off because I can see how the big money is funding many of the solutions that we're talking about. Yeah, so look, I mean, I certainly believe in the the power of using the tools of capitalism that we have today to actually um, to deploy climate change solutions. But I do think that, you know, when you, when the financial crisis happened, I actually had a real existential you know, sort of like, you know, moment where I was thinking, you know, how does the economy work? I mean, you know, I don't know all these things and it's a big topic. But one of the things that's true is that since we've left the gold standard, oil has become the new gold, right? I mean, the reason why the U.S. dollar is so strong is because oil is traded in U.S. dollars around the world. And so the dollar has become the reserve currency for everyone around the world. But as we start to destabilize coal and we destabilize oil and we start to destabilize fossil fuels, we're going to have to come up with a new reserve, right? And so what is that reserve? I think that reserve should be PPA contracts. And there's been extraordinary (laughs) work done on this, actually, by a Dutch um, economist who has actually put a lot of this work together, saying if the Fed really wanted to solve um, the financial crisis, what they would do is actually refinance. Instead of doing quantitative easing in the stock market and buying mortgages, which really hasn't worked, um, what they would do is actually buy out all of Wells Fargo's solar loans, 
wind loans, et cetera, give that money back to Wells Fargo with a huge profit because they bought them, let's say, at a 3% interest rate. And then because Wells Fargo knows how to put that money back to work, putting more money to work, creating more jobs, right? I mean, the money that the Fed has put into um, quantitative easing of mortgage loans, sure, now you can get a, a mortgage at 3% interest, but it really hasn't brought back the home construction industry. It really hasn't brought back the economy. It hasn't brought any of those things back. Whereas if they would have invested in PPA contracts that are actually infrastructure, um, we'd be putting a lot more people back to work on construction projects. Yeah, Jigger, you're way too rational. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like the good news about this was that you're getting grassroots support on climate issues, that people are starting to get their head around it where they, you know, it's becoming less conceptual and certainly it's more concrete with all these climate events. And at some point, it's just going to be a common understanding. But what we're leaving out of this conversation is politics, which is not driven at all by the reality of what's happening. Because if it were, uh, then it wouldn't be so hard to get the wind production tax credit extended because most of those projects are in red states. Red state voters are pro-EPA regulation, and yet the guys who are voting that way are not pro-EPA regulation or trying to take them down. They're totally driven by the money that's in their elections. And so until that shifts, it's going to be really hard to get good policies put into place. I mean, it's not just the Koch brothers, but, and you know, as it's got to be the bond raiders, the banks, other investors. We have to change where the money is. We have to change where the money goes and who gets elected by that money. But if you look at what the House Science Committee did during this, and John Stewart did a great takedown of it uh, when John Holdren from uh, Office of Science, Technology and Policy in the White House was testifying, that the Science Committee is populated by people who have the most unbelievable absence of science in their entire calculus. It used to be the Science Committee was had, you know, phys- you know, like Vern Ehlers was a physicist. They were actually thoughtful and they came up with policy based on science. They don't do that right now. So I am very concerned about us actually getting to a political and policy solution, given the way these guys' elections are funded. I I just think you guys are missing where this is going. Look, I think the federal government is not the answer and it will not be the answer in this area. I think we all acknowledge the fact that we can't get a carbon tax passed or whatever it is that we're trying to get accomplished at the federal level. But when you think about what the momentum is in Arizona, in Missouri, in Minnesota, in all of these places where we are pushing climate change solutions and the energy from these folks are actually causing them to get their local alma maters and others to divest. I'm not a huge fan of the divestment movement. I think I've said that. But the fact that Stanford has now agreed to divest and CalPERS has agreed to divest and, you know, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund has agreed to divest is pretty damn cool. And now the question is, can we actually use that energy to get them to invest in renewable energy and resource efficiency solutions? And my, like, you know, anecdotal evidence on the ground is yes. There's a tremendous number of people investing in biomass-based solutions, in clean fuel solutions, in wastewater treatment solutions. And what... What the president doesn't quite know how to articulate is that, yes, we have a problem with infrastructure in this country. Whatever the numbers is, it's $5 trillion, $10 trillion, $20 trillion that we're lacking in infrastructure. You and I both know that we're never going to put another trillion dollars in the highway trust fund. That's just not going to happen. So the top-down stuff from the federal government is dead. And what and what's, we're moving to is a new form of capitalism, which is bottom-up. Yeah. And that's run by the PPA. It's run by a lot of these things. And we're building infrastructure. We're building new boilers. We're building new – we're giving people energy-efficient windows. This is awesome. I totally agree. 
I think we will all admit that the action is probably not going to be coming on the federal level, although Catherine might not admit it because she's the one trying to work on many of those policies. Oh, no, but, no, no. I but, totally agree. It's like cities, local governments, private industry is doing a lot, Like the Fortune 500 companies are stepping up. So, yeah, I think public-private partnerships and very much at the local and state level. But I think we have to separate some of this when it comes to this climate march. That stuff's all happening. We talk about it. We talk to the people who are in that business, and we understand where those macro trends are going. But when I get down there on the ground level with a lot of those protesters and the people in the streets, I don't get the sense that they understand that. I'm painting with a very big brush here. I don't get the sense that the vast majority of protesters that are in the street that are saying, ban fracking now, no GMOs, kill the big banks, whatever. That's the vast majority of signs I saw and the vast majority of chants. And I think there's a huge disconnect between the thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that were on the ground there and the stuff that you're talking about, Jigger. Right, but Andrew Winston was marching, author of Green to Gold. Unilever executives were marching. The fact that they felt comfortable enough to march with all the rest of the people that you described is a breakthrough. Most of those people didn't want to be caught dead with those other folks two years ago. Today, they actually feel like it's okay for them to march alongside those people. And so it's okay now for those folks not to just like something in a Facebook page, but actually try to influence their local state regulators. And when you think about what happened in Arizona, that came from people-powered movements. And I think those people you know, which are not a lot of people. It's like a thousand people total in Arizona that are active on these issues. But those thousand people actually made a difference. They pushed back Arizona Public Service and the totally, you know, captured regulators at the Arizona Corporation Commission and forced them to give a damn about their own consumers. And that happened because they actually have 400,000 people in New York who they looked to and said, you know, if those guys can march, then I can do my part in my hometown. Yeah, which is why I think you're, the mayors, the commissioners, those are the guys that can be swayed by, I, I think, by the public support. I think it's much harder to get to members of Congress because they have, uh, you know, they they speak to a higher boss. Hey, just quick, since we, we've talked about the march a lot and we haven't really talked about the actual UN summit, did anyone have any takeaways from the UN summit? Kind of the same old, same old business as usual. Catherine, anything that uh, made you feel somewhat positive? Yeah, so there was the New York de- Declaration on Forests that promised to stop deforestation 50% by 2020 and down to zero by 2050. But I if, thought that was pretty significant. It is, totally. But if we could count the number of initiatives like that that will take billions of dollars in investment that don't get funded, boy, I mean, I, I just couldn't count them on my fingers. It's it's crazy. And the same goes with that big green climate fund for developing countries. We did see some European countries step up and add uh, more money into that fund to help some more vulnerable nations. But, I, you know, it, it is positive. We're announcing new things, but ultimately many of them don't get funded. Right. But, but again, I mean, look, someone gave me the stat the other day, which I thought was fascinating. The World Bank on on average, total provides about $7 billion a year in energy. Citibank does $7 billion a week on energy, right? And so, so the World Bank is pretty irrelevant, and so is the UN and all these other things. But where they are relevant is you had 120 global leaders sitting in a room with President Obama saying something positive that are actually being told, you're a jackass if you actually think you're going to build new coal. 
right? Because it is not good for your country. It's not good for balance of payments. It's not good for indigenous people. It's not good for the water resources. It's not good for all these things. Oh, and by the way, solar and wind are cheaper. The fact that people are actually starting to have that conversation in the room in the UN matters because that was not happening 14 months ago. I can guarantee you. Yeah. And when you have Walmart, Procter & Gamble, Mars, all those guys saying we're moving to 100% renewables, what that says to these folks is, oh, my economic development is also at risk. Mm-hmm. At least in the major developed economies, that seems to be one of the more positive trends to me. The largest corporations saying we can get to 100% renewables mostly by procuring our own projects, not through RECs and other certificates, but actual on-site projects and power purchase agreements. That's huge. And then you had a bunch of companies, like a thousand companies, including Statoil, this Norwegian oil company, pretty progressive company. They're doing a lot in, in wind and other R&D and other clean tech. Uh, they said that they were going to set their own internal price on carbon. And so you've seen thousands and thousands of companies do that, including many in the fossil fuel sector. And, you know, that's a pretty positive development when you see major corporations take a lead. And there, there seems to be sufficient momentum behind that. But despite you know some of these positive developments that we're talking about, it's pretty clear that we're not going to get some global binding treaty in 2015 in Paris. I mean, does anyone really think that that's realistic at all? I certainly don't. And I don't think that we should be pushing for that. It's this bottom-up technology sharing, um, market development, individual country goal-setting, and verification that I think needs to happen in a much bigger way. Not this, let's wait and keep setting in motion the conditions to put it in place a treaty five years down the road and perhaps agree to something. I mean, it it hasn't worked in the many, many years that the UN has under, been undertaking this process. And I don't see how it could work this year or next year. Look, I mean, I think that, I mean, I've started to learn more about these things since my wife is a fixture in many of these meetings. And, and, and what I would say is that I think that um, these meetings are really so that all these people can get to know each other. They're not really designed to accomplish anything. And the goal of the whole thing is to make sure that when they're needed, when there's actually a crisis, like the food crisis in 2008, etc., that they already know each other, they trust each other, and they can actually get a deal done. What could get accomplished in Paris, in my opinion, is the Green Goods Treaty. I think figuring out how we actually get rid of all the tariffs on green goods from solar and wind as well as other assets, um, I think that could move forward at the Paris Summit. But look, getting a global deal on carbon, I think we all agree, is not going to happen. It's what it is. But the conversations, frankly, like you know, are moving people more and more and more to the left, which gives an opening for people like me and others to strike billion-dollar deals with the countries directly. Yeah, and I think, you know, I was I went to the Copenhagen talks and again that didn't come out with anything much, but what I came away from that is just what Jigger said is so many connections with other people, you're starting to connect the dots, seeing how countries are affected on a very personal level. Um so I I still think it's really really healthy to go to those and and um, you know, participate. All right, let's close out the show now. Let's hear something we don't know. Catherine What's your story this week? So you all might remember a couple of weeks back, we talked about cellulosic ethanol. And some of the things that I said were based on uh, 
my past experience at the very early days of cellulose when it was trying desperately to kind of claw its way up. And I was approached after that show by sort of the new ethanol industry. And it was really exciting because I got a little briefing from several different companies, really, uh, including Nova Zymesturger that you had mentioned. Um, and Poet came over to visit me. And it was really great to see kind of how they progressed. So I did mischaracterize something, which is that there really is no warfare between the first and second generation of fuels so that the corn guys are, in fact, the cellulosic folks now. They aren't at war. In fact, they are completely aligned against the oil industry. Um, So it was really good to see that. I was really excited. Um, They are really excited about their industry, about moving to cellulosic biofuels. Another plant just opened up in Iowa at Quad County that's going to manufacture 2 million gallons a year. Abengoa DuPont are both expected to open uh, facilities later this year. So it was really heartening to hear that. And one of the big uncertainties, I think, is um, not the the RFS is fine. They do not want to change that at all. It's in statute. It actually protects the industry. Instead, it is the regulatory uncertainty that we talked about. And the administration's rule is really going to be difficult. There are a lot of nuances of this industry um, and in how the rule is set up. They... um, It'd be interesting to have someone on, an expert, to talk about this. But I was really heartened at the way the industry is moving now and that the issue now is really making sure that the administration can be supportive rather than uh, devol- you know, devolving their industry. Good to know they're listening, too. And yeah, that was really nice. Goes to show you we do listen to your comments, too. So thanks for that. And Jigger, what do you have? So, you know, I want to talk about two things. One is that the IEA came out with a report um, they basically said that they think now that 50% of total electricity produced in the world by 2050 will come from direct conversion of solar power. So photovoltaic, CSP, or solar thermal. So they didn't get the memo that I thought that CSP was dead. But what was interesting <laughs> was they actually came out of, of this thing saying it, it, that by 2050, 50% of primary uh, electricity is going to come from uh, solar power, which I think is you know just – extraordinary um do you think they're actually realistic i think it's too far i think it's going to be 2030 but anyway that's my that's my own uh, cross to bear i think this stuff is exponential and i think most people are too linear in their thinking and i think this stuff will happen so much faster than people think um but the second piece of big news was on uh on monday sun edison filed for their yield co for their emerging markets yield co and that's really exciting because the biggest problem with emerging markets for me personally around the world is that you can't figure out how to price equity. Equity generally asks for roughly 25% returns in India, South Africa, you know, Uganda, etc. Um, but if the public markets can actually price that equity, which I think they will, maybe it'll be double what the yield co is for Terraform Power. But Double that just means it's like sort of 12 or 14% returns, not you know 25. It suddenly means that equity becomes very, very cost-effective around the world, um, which means that we can actually meet these IEA forecasts. Um, I'll go to New York one more time for my last story and just follow up on our live show last week. And I was pretty inspired by what everyone was saying during that conversation about how to set forward-thinking parameters for a market and then basically get out of the way to encourage business to flourish. And as I was thinking about it and I listened to the conversation over again, it struck me as so deeply conservative and perhaps even libertarian 
this this libertarian philosophy about markets, right? I mean, and I wrote up this piece summing up my reaction um, about why conservatives and libertarians should love what's going on in New York and should attempt to model it. And after I wrote that piece, I tweeted it out to uh, the Tea Party chairwoman, Debbie Dooley, who became famous for her strong support of solar and has forced uh, Georgia Power to beef up its solar efforts. She formed the Green Tea Party, and she responded, I love the idea. And if you can get a member of the Tea Party to enthusiastically embrace a sweeping clean energy and climate policy in New York, then I think you've hit on something really big, in my opinion. And, you know, I think the more I consider what New York is doing, the more excited I get about the fact that they've hit on something that can bridge what maybe hardcore progressives want and hardcore libertarians and conservatives want. And so, you know, as we consider factors like the new EPA rules, I think states should be looking at this kind of approach. Um, Obviously, what's going on in New York can't necessarily apply to a lot of other states, but I think there are some basic fundamentals in there that can be learned from as you know, states think about how to get beyond specific mandates. We have reached the end of this week's show. As usual, many of your additional needs can be found at greentechmedia.com, where we cover many of the stories that you heard on the podcast, and we provide links to topics that uh, we discuss throughout the show. Just a reminder to our listeners to please fill out our short survey. We have a link to that on our show notes, and again, you can just link go to it via your mobile device or from greentechmedia.com slash podcast to connect directly with the gang follow us uh or the podcast on twitter we have individual accounts and we have the green the energy gang account you can also send an email to me at lacy l-a-c-e-y at greentechmedia.com i will pass along your note to Catherine and jigger have a great weekend, Catherine. I presume you're going to be watching the Nats in the NL East Division Series on Friday. You betcha. And thanks to everybody who came to the New York event. I forgot to say it at the beginning, but it was really, really great. It was such a blast. We had a really great time and got to meet a lot of listeners. Just people are so passionate about what's going on in this industry, and I hope that our passion comes through too, and I think that we're connecting with a lot of people. So it's great to meet folks in person. Um, Jigger? Have a great weekend. I don't know if you're going to be watching baseball or if you'll be off cavorting with the prime minister of India or something. <laughs> no, probably no, uh, no baseball and no cricket uh, in my future. But, uh, but I will be, uh, I will be uh, traveling back from San Francisco to New York and uh, enjoying a wonderful fall day in New York this weekend. Definitely. Safe travels. Talk to you both next week with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.